it just was a reminder that you cannot get stuck on where you are. That's not your final place. This is not your final place. And so that's the lesson that I always share when I tell the story to younger children. Like where you are right now does not define where you will be because where you will be will far exceed any vision that you have of where you are right now. Welcome to a new season of Start Right Here, where I talk to BIPOC beauty pros about breaking into beauty, standing out, and defining success for themselves. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I'm OG beauty director turned consultant, but I'm also a dot connector who links others with people, ideas, and information. And I do this show because I am an advocate for creating an equitable, inclusive beauty industry. And this show is one way to bring you the information if you want to take a seat at the table or build one of your own. Let's get started with the show. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about the power in the pivot, actually finding your power in the pivot. And today's guest, Melissa Hebert, is the CEO and founder of Shift Beauty, but she started out her career as a corporate marketing executive. And we're going to hear how she seized her power in the pivot and created a successful beauty business. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much, Corinne. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So I want to start with the foundation. So where did you grow up and how did it shape your ideas about beauty? I was born on the beautiful island of Jamaica. We immigrated here in the 80s. I was seven years old when I left Jamaica, but I grew up in a place where I was seen, I was loved. I felt whole as a young Black child on that beautiful island. So when I came to the U.S., it was a different kind of reckoning in terms of who I am as a young Black girl growing up now in the U.S., going to school, formal school here, and really finding my place as a brown chocolate girl who, for the first time, that was a thing. But the great thing is I had such a good foundation in where I came from that I sort of navigated my way through early childhood just really confidently. And I saw my mom also show up really confidently. She always wore red lipstick and We always looked good. There were seven children. We had a modest upbringing, but you couldn't tell. You always looked at us and felt like we had it all. And part of that was just ensuring that we just had the values of how we showed up in the world. But much of that came from watching my mom, how she got her hair. Every Saturday, we would go to the beauty salon, every Saturday together. And so that really was started my belief and understanding in not just self-care, but how we show up in the world. So beauty has always been something that you've loved, but would you consider your career in beauty a destination or a detour? Oh, it's an absolute destination. I felt that at 14 years old, when I had the license now to wear makeup and my first makeup product was red lipstick that I conveniently borrowed out of my mom's purse, took it to school with me and wore it all day. And I just felt alive. I felt this level of expression. And I'm like, if I feel this way, I know other people would feel this way. And then I had the unique opportunity to attend beauty school while in high school. I went to a liberal arts high school. So we had the opportunity to choose a trade. And my trade was beauty. I went to beauty school on the weekends with my friends from high school. And 
I graduated from high school and beauty school simultaneously. So I felt that somehow once I had the energy of what beauty felt for me, the universe sort of conspired to show it up for me with this opportunity to go to beauty school while in high school. Then when I went away to college, it showed up in the way of me finding an abandoned salon in my dorm, going in there and cleaning it out and doing hair and makeup on the weekends. It showed up when I graduated from college and moved to New York City and was working in an executive but hiding my beauty passion on the side. So it was always with me. But for me, it was one of those things where while it was a destination, I had to really understand why I was on this journey when my mind was telling me that I had a more traditional journey that I had to take. You said something which I cannot let go by. She found an abandoned hair salon at school. Yes. We've got to ask what school she went to because not every school is going to have a beauty salon in the dorm. Yes. (laughs) I attended the illustrious Fisk University, phenomenal HBCU in Nashville, Tennessee. And I arrived on campus freshman year. It wasn't my first choice of the dorm. Everyone wanted to be in the more popular dormitories. And I ended up in the not so popular dormitory. But, you know, as we say, God has a bigger plan. And I took a tour around the dorm after putting my bags away in my room. And I went to the third floor and I saw that the light was shining in this room. The room was very dark. Everything was covered by tarp. But there was this one corner of an object that looked porcelain. I'm like, I can tell a sink from a mile away, you know, because I was in beauty school prior to, so I know a sink from a mile away. I asked the RA to open up the room and it turns out that it was an abandoned salon. It had had some sort of electrical fire years prior and they never made it operable going forward. And so I'm like, we can do something with this. And I went to Walmart. I remember like it was just, I took a taxi to Walmart took like $30 and got a bunch of cleaning products. I came back, took off all the tarp, and I didn't even ask for permission. I just went ahead and did it, right? I was like, you know what? I'll ask for forgiveness later. (laughs) But right now we need to do this. And so that's what happened. So I think that that is amazing, particularly if you're a Black person who went to college. There was always someone or several people in the dorm who could do your hair. But very rarely, this may be just a diamond opportunity that Melissa had actual salon that she could work out of, a space where you're not sitting on the floor between somebody's legs, which there's nothing wrong with that. But operating almost like a, well, not almost, operating a business while in school and being a little bit more than a kitchen beautician. Yes, It was like operating a salon. We took appointments because I was a full-time student. I was a double major, pre-law and public administration. I had a full load. I also had two jobs off campus, working at Saks Fifth Avenue and also working at the credit union. But I made time for beauty Saturdays and Sunday mornings. We would literally take appointments. And I was charging next to nothing. $5 here, $10 here. But the great thing is the five girls that I went to high school with, we all actually got accepted to the same college. We all were also the ones that went to the beauty school together. So we had this functioning experience of like young beauty entrepreneurs at the time, not even calling ourselves that, putting our lashes on and hair. And the crazy thing is, so we also connected with someone locally who did nails. So she would come in and do nails with us. I mean, it was the most incredible thing. It's absolutely amazing. In some ways, it actually gave you even more confidence in 
beauty. And maybe that's one of the reasons it stayed so deeply embedded within you. It did. But for me, being in college, that was the goal. I wanted a formal education. I wanted the HBCU experience. I wanted to be a scholar. I wanted to be successful educationally. But I also had this creative passion that also just was equally calling me. But I did make sure that I was focused. I was focused as a student, but I loved doing beauty on the weekends. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Now, you mentioned that you felt the need to take a traditional path at some point. Let's talk about the career path you did take before working in beauty full-time. What was your first job? My first job out of college, after deciding not to go to law school, as I mentioned, I was a pre-law undergrad. All things led to law school. However, I did not go to law school. I moved to New York City with a one-way plane ticket, one suitcase, (laughs) a suitcase full of suits, a hundred resumes that I had printed from the computer lab before I left. And I went to New York City with a huge goal and a plan of succeeding. I'm like, that's the place of endless possibilities. So that's what I did. And I landed a job at a brand licensing agency for, if you remember, two young girls from Full House. Yeah. So they had a billion dollar brand and they worked for the agency that did the licensing that had an exclusive partnership with Walmart. So here I am at 21 in New York City working for two young billionaires in brand licensing. And that was the beginning of my brand marketing career in corporate America. I just have to make a comment. What's really interesting to me is that you are not the first guest who took a leap of faith and came to New York with a suitcase. One person came with a backpack and one-way ticket and said, I am doing this. And I think that characteristic is almost necessary. If you want something, you have to be willing to take a risk in order to achieve it. It's not just going to be handed to you like, oh, you want to be in beauty? Oh, you want to be in brand marketing? Here, I'm going to come to where you are and give it to you. So you went to where you thought the jobs were and landed one. I did. I gave myself one week and I had $100 to spend. I walked everywhere because I knew that $100 wouldn't go far if I took a subway or took taxis. And I walked to all of my interviews. I gave myself one week. The great thing that I did was when I was in college, I worked with job placement agencies like Apple One and others. So I was already in the database. I was the best typer. I had the best phone etiquette. I had a lot of foundational skills, but I also never took a spring break in college. I didn't do any of the summer hanging out. I worked. So I had a great resume by the time I graduated college. So when I went into New York City, I gave myself five days to have an offer by Friday to allow me to start on Monday. I had $100 to spend, and that was it. So it was really one of those things that I couldn't believe that I was taking this risk in that way because my parents were like, come home, come home. And I'm like, no, I can do this. And I'm like, mom, you left Jamaica with five kids at the time to come to the United States to give us a better life. I mean, you know about risk taking. It's in my DNA. So I know it's her job to protect me. And that's really what it was. But I just felt it in my bones. I can do this. That's so fabulous. And for people who are listening or watching who are not aware Mary Kay and Ashley aren't the only ones who had like thriving licensing deals. Raven Simone, my goodness, she was the first young black star to parlay 
that popularity into a thriving business as well. So for Melissa to have worked with Mary-Kate and Ashley on this is really, really great foundational training for her. It was. And I really didn't have any concept of brand licensing at the time. What I knew was that I had an opportunity to be a part of something great and whatever capacity that meant. And so this was my chance. And I was able to sort of bring some of that pre-law knowledge to the table because much of licensing is brokering deals and really knowing how to negotiate and navigate with the vendors and being able to articulate terms of the brand licensing agreement as a brand manager. And so it's sort of like it was intentionally the place that I needed to be after choosing not to go to law school, because this was the other aspect of allowing me to sort of bring marketing and legal to the table. Yes, yes. And a lot of people don't have that skill. Like one of the things that many of us who choose entrepreneurship or corporate careers, the ability to negotiate is a critical skill that a lot of us don't acquire and then have to learn. I was on the debate team in college. Wow. <laughs> so when I watched the movie Great Debaters, I'm like, ooh, that looks so familiar. But that was such grounds for me to understand business and have the confidence of not just knowing what I'm talking about, but defending it in a way that makes other people move to action. That's what I learned in college. And I took that with me, my 21-year-old self bouncing into New York City with no plan. But truthfully, I mean, it really all sort of was a setup for something bigger. After working with Mary-Kate and Ashley, you had a thriving career. Can you tell us some of the other places you worked and the lessons you took away from those roles? Yeah, my brand career continued to grow. I went from there to work for Napier and Monet High Fashion Jewelry. I was a merchandising analyst. So I actually worked across the board with all of their retailers, so from Bloomingdale's to Kohl's, et cetera. And that was a numbers sort of space to be in. So, you know, understanding forecasting and how product was performing in certain markets versus other markets, et cetera. And so I looked at this brand merchandising experience that I was now undertaking as another level in a different category. So I went from apparel, accessories, and shoes, which was the Mary-Kate and Ashley brand, primarily licensing to Walmart, to now working on the brand side of high fashion jewelry, which I loved. (laughs) As you can see, like I'm all about the jewelry. So I'm like in these spaces and places of things that I consume and that I love and to be able to go to big retailers like Bloomingdale's and sit in the room and to be a representative This beautiful brand was phenomenal. And so for me, that was the place that I truly understood the finance and the numbers part of the brand industry and how that really plays a role in different markets across the country. So for each role, it sounds like you were building a toolkit that helped you pivot. Like you had amassed some tools that you could use wherever you went. Yeah, you know, I was learning a lot fast and at a young age, as a young Black woman in New York City, I was acquiring a lot of knowledge in a short period of time. So in that acquisition, I really also had to really just be comfortable with what I was now going to do with everything that I learned. This was given to me for a reason. So every time I went into a new space, I had to bring that with me. Part of that was expressed during the interview process. So they understand that my competence But the other part of that, too, was just like, surely that I belong here. And I always wanted to continue to elevate. I never worked on a parallel path. 
I was like, okay, I deserve a salary increase as a result. You know, I could advocate for myself in a way that I felt that my career and the trajectory that I was on really justified me knowing my worth early. From Napier, where did you go from there? From there, I actually went to work for Nike. So I left New York City just before 9-11. And at that point, I was missing home a lot because I went home during the holidays. And I had explored what was happening with Nike at the time. There was a department called the Jordan brand, which is Michael Jordan's phenomenal category within Nike Corporation. And I saw there was a position open similar to what I was doing in New York City, working on the category side of the business for footwear, but on the product marketing vertical. And I was like, oh, I would apply for this, but I need to be here because Nike takes you through a series of interviews. You don't just apply. You go through interviews and panels and you probably go through like five or six interviews before. So I needed to leave New York in order to position myself for this. So I came back to Portland, went through my series of interviews and landed a job working for the Jordan brand within the Nike Corporation. So literally working for Michael Jordan, which for me was a career highlight. Yes, I had worked for some amazing brand, but if you know my story of being in high school, and I told you, we came from modest upbringings. So I didn't have a lot. I played basketball. I couldn't afford a Jordan shoe. My parents couldn't afford a Jordan shoe. I wore anything other than Jordans. But I envied, and that's me being honest, some of my teammates who were able to afford it. And I remember being 15, 16, playing basketball and wishing and hoping that somehow, some way I'd be able to afford a pair of Jordans. So you fast forward eight, nine years later, I'm out of college. I now have this opportunity to work for Nike, Michael Jordan. And as an employee, I get free access to footwear and everything. It's the abundant access as an employee to products and services and amenities for a brand that I couldn't access at 15. You couldn't write that for me. No. And what's interesting about that is that sometimes we put things in the atmosphere. We pray for things. And depending on people's belief system, I'm going to say from my perspective, you pray for something, you don't know when God's going to answer or how. And for you, it was over and above what that 15-year-old ever expected. Over and above. So much so that I'm now in meetings with Michael Jordan and I have influence on what's happening in terms of my particular role in product marketing and be able to contribute to the business and to see the impact just of the brand in and of itself and having this diverse employee pool. I think the Jordan brand was probably the most diverse division of all. And it really was inspiring and empowering to know that now I'm a woman who loves to wear heels, right? But I'm working in an athletic environment, but it wasn't new to me. But I just had to pinch myself because I'm like, it just was a reminder that you cannot get stuck on where you are. That's not your final place. This is not your final place. And so that's the lesson that I always share when I tell the story to younger children. Like where you are right now does not define where you will be because where you will be will far exceed any vision that you have of where you are right now. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. So you went from Oregon to LA at one point. Yeah, so actually, here's the crazy thing. I went back to New York City. In between, oh wow. After almost five years of working for Nike, I felt like I had hit the ceiling in my role. And the great thing about Nike is 
that you don't ever want to leave. So there wasn't an opportunity for me to grow into other roles. So I said, you know what? Either I'm going to stay here for another five years or I'm going to, again, take matters into my own hands and figure out my next path. I knew that a large part of growth professionally is your credentials. I wanted a master's degree. I moved back to New York, got into graduate school. So I was obtaining my MBA while working in advertising. So I ended up moving back to New York, secured a job with Uniworld Advertising Group, which is the number one Black-owned multicultural advertising agency in New York City. So did I have a life? No. (laughs) Every single job that you've had, which was really interesting, has been like the leader in the category, Mary Kay Nashley, leader in branding, groundbreaking in what they've done, and set the foundation for the row. I mean, they made so much money, they can do the row. At such a young age. Really, at such a young age. And Nike and Napier, those are all leaders in the category. In the industry, yes. So going from Nike, where there's a diverse team, to Uniworld, where they're the leaders in really storytelling for us, in advertising. What was that like? If you ever watch Boomerang, you know, if you had a desire to work in a Black agency, Many people say that Uniworld was sort of the backdrop of the movie Boomerang, but I mean, nothing like it. To see smart, creative, fashionable, really just strong, confident Black people under one roof working for some of the biggest brands. So we had brands, we had Ford, of course, Burger King, big brands, the agency acquired. And so every day felt like a movie. Every day felt like a movie because of the work that the creative team was doing and the work that we were involved in making happen for the agency. It was like no other. I really felt like I was living within a movie, working for such a phenomenal advertising agency. Yeah. And even though we have more access about career paths now, you know, young people do, we didn't know at the time, 10, 20 years ago, what the possibilities were. I just was listening to... Malcolm Lee being interviewed by Jamel Hill. I just listened to that interview today. And they were talking about Boomerang seemed like a anomaly probably to the film companies because they didn't think that such a thing was possible, but Uniworld was proof. It was proof. It existed. It existed within our ecosystem. And to your point about the storytelling, which was really at the hallmark of Uniworld's ability to not just win business, but continue to stay at the top. I remember being a part of pitching new business and the idea of winning a client through sharing a vision that they could buy into and also looking at the competency of the team that will deliver upon that. That whole journey for me taught me a lot. And so I was able to also develop a new skill set in new business development, obviously client acquisition, and then also managing multi-million dollar brands. So now as an agency and the role that I was in, Burger King was actually my main client. So I would fly to Miami almost two, three times a month, working at the headquarters of Miami with the client, running a national promotion and promotional event, and really just servicing the client in that way and managing, again, this business that meant that it was not just the advertising buy, but it was also the merchandising and also partnerships. So we did a deal with major celebrities that would then be a brand ambassadors for Burger King. So really being a part of the entire 
spectrum. Just managing a brand within the agency was, again, that new skill set that I was able to now embolden to continue on the journey that I was on corporately. And we haven't even gotten to L.A. yet. (laughs) No, we have not. We went back to New York City and then BET stole me. BET stole me away from Uniworld, actually. So we were very much working closely with BET because Uniworld being a multicultural agency, BET was a natural major player on the TV side. And so there was always constant interaction with them. And when I was graduating from grad school, I started to become a little bit more free to attend industry events. And so I was having these moments where I was interfacing with some of the BET executives. And at one point I was asked to lunch and we had a meeting and there was a new division opening up within BET that managed integrated marketing for the network. And so a brand new team, and they were looking for individuals to be a part of that brand new team. And again, for me, I'm always looking at how can I make an impact? Like, what can I do? If I'm going to come in, I want to do something special. I want to work on something special. And so I look at all of the opportunities that I've had, and they've all been special in their own way. And now this was no different. So I took the job. I had doubled my salary because at that point I was like, okay, if I have an MBA, I have real leverage now. And it was my first time like negotiating a high six-figure salary at 29 years old. And I was fearful, but I was also prepared because I had a lot of good mentors that were men in corporate America, mentors and advisors that were women. So I had people to sort of bounce off of this growth. And I didn't want to miss my mark. They say women, we often tend to ask for less. I was the type that asked for more. I love it. So ask for more because you are worth the more. And I think part of the value and the impact you make is that you believe that you were worth it. So one of the mistakes that we make is not believing that we're worth it. We second guess ourselves and shut ourselves down before we even get to the table. And sometimes if somebody on the other side of the table feels that hesitancy, they have you. They have you. The worst that can happen is they offer less and you'll still be above where you want to be and need to be. So I sort of just went in with that. And it was very mutual. We both were happy with the terms and what we were able to do. What was your beauty passion at this point? Still there. Every holiday, somebody was getting married. And I'm the type that I always went home for the holidays still. So there were. Melissa's coming home. Can you do some such and such makeup? But it was always like really quiet, hidden. So I didn't think that I'd be taken seriously as an executive and also as someone who enjoyed doing makeup and enjoyed beauty. It's different if I were like an executive and an artist, like I was painting on canvas. It was a different sort of mindset. And maybe it was my own limiting belief on like how I felt that this dualism of being a corporate executive, but having this passion for makeup. But I didn't see anyone else doing it. And I didn't want to compromise the hard work that I had doing building my career. So I honestly kept it quiet. So you started suppressing this creativity and you're high flying in your career. The higher I climbed, the more I suppressed. And so what happened to you? What happened as a result? Suppression leads to depression. And I wouldn't say that I was depressed. What I knew is that I was losing the joy of the corporate life. So after I left BET, I moved to California. So I now moved to the Los Angeles Times Entertainment Division. So here I am working for one of the most prestigious 
publications in the country, the Los Angeles Times, in the entertainment marketing division and working on big projects, working on big partnerships. At the time I came in, we were looking at big partnerships for the All-Star Weekend. There was a lot of major things on the table. And for me, I started to feel that what I was suppressing was outweighing what I was giving in my day-to-day job. So I took a sabbatical, went back to Portland to my parents' home, walked away, just wanted some time. And I had the time to take vacation-wise, and I took it. And I just sat and I just was like, why am I not happy? I have this great career, the six-figure lifestyle. I have this and that, convertible, all the things that many would want at this. Why is this not enough? And I remember my mom was cooking in the kitchen and I was on her Facebook page. I'm like, mom, your Facebook profile, we need to upgrade this. So when you get done cooking, I'm going to do a makeover on you. We're the same complexion, so it wasn't hard to match her. And I remember in the midst of doing my mother's makeover, in the middle of the kitchen, surrounded by the fragrances of ackee and sawfish and curry chicken, you know, my answer came because I had this sense of like peace and freedom and joy just by seeing my mother's reaction. We went outside and we took some photos. We put that photo on her Facebook page. Till this day, it is like the most engagement she's ever had on her social media from the makeover, right? And I just felt like, why am I missing out on what really is calling me? Not that I didn't love my career, but it is now time. 14 years, I've given my all. There's nothing more that I need to do or want to do in corporate America. It is now time for me to honor my truth. And my truth is I love beauty and beauty loves me. Here's what's interesting. Let me peel back a little bit. When I was in advertising working for Mr. Lewis, who was the president of Beauty World, I remember we were pitching to, I want to say it was CoverGirl at the time. And I'm on the Burger King account. So I'm on like a different side of the agency where I'm not on the beauty side with the beauty team, although I've always wanted to be. I worked on burgers and Whoppers and it was fine. But I had the opportunity to go be a part of the pitch team for CoverGirl. The president called me into his office and he said, would you be interested in being part of this pitch team with us? He's like, I know you work on Burger King, but this will just be you know about a week's worth of your time. And I was like, Mr. Lewis, why me? And he looked at me, he said, because you know beauty. Still to this day, it's the thing that stuck with me because oftentimes we may undermine what other people have to say about us. And I say that's why it's so important to pay attention, not just to yourself, but also externally and all the things. And for him to see how I show up at work every day, always in my makeup, always showing up as me, he knew nothing about the thing that I was suppressing. He specifically said, I know beauty because of how I show up to work every day. So didn't know how deep it ran. And so I was honored. Honestly, I went to the bathroom and I cried because I was just like, I'm seen by someone who is a leader in this industry. I never came to work talking about beauty, but he saw me and he validated the thing that I was suppressing. So I knew it was just a matter of time. It was just a ticking, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. And when I got to California, the clock had ran out, in my opinion. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to 
the Start Right Here podcast and leave a review. Also, you can sign up for our mailing list at theberoundtable.com so you will be on the know about all the good things coming. Why do you think it is with your amazing resume that some beauty company didn't just snatch you up? The only 3% of Black women today are in C-suite positions within beauty. There was no one there that would advocate for me to come in. So if you look at my background, it was all like fashion, apparel, nothing beauty. My resume didn't speak to that. So when I was looking for opportunities to work in beauty, no one had the creativity to see like how I had these amazing transferable skills and this passion for beauty, how I would be a good candidate for a job on a brand. Trust me, I tried. I applied to hundreds of jobs in beauty before I left corporate America and no one would hire me. When I moved to California during that time frame, this was 2009, there weren't many beauty brands. Now there are plenty, but at the time there weren't many. I didn't have the opportunity and there was no one inside any of these beauty brands that would be able to advocate for me. So I had to take matters into my own hands. Yeah, this is one of the lessons here. No one would hire her, so she pivoted anyway. So let's talk about that pivot. One of the great things you said in the pre-interview is it's both attitude and that you went in your toolkit and looked at yourself as a client. Yes. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So for me, one of the most powerful parts about preparing yourself for the pivot is knowing what your strengths are. Because trust me, there are going to be plenty of people looking for your weaknesses. And then how do I galvanize around my strengths so that other people can believe and buy into it? So when I left corporate America to now coming into beauty in the way that I came in, walking away from all the things that many people would have been attached to as an executive, I now was working into an industry where I had to start from scratch. No one cared about me working for Michael Jordan and all the things. It's like, look, you're in beauty. What can you do? So I said, instead of trying to go one-to-one to convince them, I'm going to create a campaign around myself so that I can go one to many. Many people will see me for who I am, the creative artist who's not just an artist, but a businesswoman. So I literally turned myself into my own marketing campaign. I did my own branding photo shoot. I designed my own website. I started to then create strategic partnerships with boutiques and these different spaces and places that I could show up and be present as a beauty professional and then have buy-in from the individuals. Lo and behold, some of these places that I were showing up, and many of them were unpaid, but I also looked at this as like, this is a part of marketing. Some of it is going to be tangible and much of it is going to be intangible. And some of these environments that I set up my beauty counter in the corner of a boutique, many women shopping coming in there were executives at different networks and different places. And lo and behold, that's what happened. Ended up doing makeup for an executive for a network. She told me that, ironically, one of the networks was coming to shoot during BET Awards weekend, and they were going to different lounges and filming there. And so I ended up partnering with the Beauty Lounge, and one of the reality shows were coming in to film there. And I ended up doing some makeup for one of the characters on the show. She ended up needing a makeup artist at the time. This ended up being a show for VH1. VH1 turned out to be my first network that I worked for. And I literally worked in network television ever since that day. The thing is, the marketing campaign 
it was not even just the marketing campaign. The campaign plus the pop-ups. You were doing pop-ups before there were pop-ups. Yes. <laughs> there was no name for it, but you were popping up in places that people of influence happened to be. So it was creating network opportunities through these pop-ups that also propelled the pivot forward. Part of pivoting is also planting seeds. So that for me is what the pop-ups represented. Because again, I wasn't being compensated. I was using my own time planting seeds in these places where I knew I could bear fruit somehow because women shop. We do. And where do we shop? We shop on Saturdays after we leave the hair salon. So I had time slots, one to four at one boutique at five to nine at a different boutique, different sides of the city. Very, very smart. The show you ended up working for, the first show, because you've worked on more than 30 reality shows, right? But the first one was Basketball Wives LA. Basketball Wives of LA, first season. So if you don't know by now, Melissa never, ever does anything small. Like, although she took risks and stuff like that, when you make a shift, it's always like, boom, you're coming in on something that everybody knows about. Absolutely. And it was never really about the show. I wanted visibility with the network. I wanted visibility with the decision makers. I wanted visibility with the producers and the directors. I wanted them to know my name. I wanted to be top of mind. I wanted them to consider me for the next show and the next show. So much so that I ended up creating an agency so that I now became a partner to the networks so that when they had another show, they knew that they had Black talent to hire as a result of my company. So I went in thinking bigger, but I was never afraid to do the small things. That is just a really powerful gem. Say it again. I was never afraid to do the small things. The Bible says, don't despise small beginnings. I was never afraid. Who I was, this corporate executive that flew on first class and private jets, that was then. Where I am now, I'm starting from a place of starting over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is amazing. What's interesting is that some folks would have gotten the job at Basketball Wise LA and said, this is it. I'm good. <laughs> but you always see a bigger picture. And once you see the bigger picture, you see another bigger picture. It's almost like you take the staircase and you don't know how high it's going up because you take that one step and then take the next step. And you're like, I'm trusting that there's another step here. So I'm going to take that one too. As opposed to, okay, I'm on this first step. This looks good. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to pitch my tent and stay here. Yes, that's absolutely right. Because I do know that there's always bigger. There's always more. And I also didn't start blindly. I started with a marketing plan that also was a part of a bigger business plan. So I knew my path, but I also made a ton of sacrifices, right? My first year of like leaving corporate America to launch into beauty, I downsized my house. I gave up the luxury vehicle for a more practical, still a nice, but a more practical vehicle. I didn't shop for an entire year, no new clothes. I had it all. I had bags and stuff that I had tags on. You know, I had a great career, so I had things. I didn't need anything else, but I knew what I needed was to make a sacrifice. I needed to replace my six-figure income in 12 months. And the only way to do that was to downsize, pivot, make some changes, build up my credibility, and then scale my business within a short period of time. And truthfully, 
all of that happened within 12 months. I was right back into the dealership, getting my luxury car, literally almost a year later, all the things. But I'm telling you that sacrifice is a huge part of pivoting. It has to be. You can't go into a new space as the same person. Right. And you can't pivot if you're not willing to do some of this stuff. It's almost like talk a good game, but if you're not willing to pony up, you know, what it takes, like to sacrifice, to downgrade, to do all the things that it takes, then it's not going to happen. When I play basketball, I always reference basketball because many people don't associate with me basketball because I'm the heel wearing lipstick wearing kind of person. But basketball was a huge part of my foundation and discipline, but also the idea of pivoting. I was a two guard. And I think about the lessons that I learned from the plan that my coach laid out the plays that we ran and how if I pivoted this direction, the result would be that I could make a pass to the three or the center and they would get a clear shot. So I look at my life and like how I pivot in this very, very same way. If I pivot this way, there's going to be a result, but you got to run the play though. So part of pivoting what is your playbook? And then run the play. Run the play to the end. To the end. You can't cut corners because when you're on a team and the play is pass this, this, run a zone, there's a sequence to it. You can't interpret that for yourself. This play is designed for a successful result. So run your play so you can score. And so my scoring is likened to all the things that I've been able to achieve as a result of the playbook that I created. And I don't share that playbook. That playbook is an internal thing. And my playbook is going to look very differently from other playbook because my journey is different. But who I have become is what I'm most proud of. It's not just about scoring. It's about who I became along the way. Yes. When we're talking about going up another step, you decided to merge all this big business acumen with the beauty. So you merged your corporate marketing experience, your brand marketing experience, integrated marketing experience with beauty and started to work directly with founders. Yes. How did that come about? And tell us a little bit about the shift. I mean, literally the shift. (laughs) Yeah, literally the shift. So right around 2018, I started to consult with more established brands like Cream of Nature and others, rebranding, product launches, And I became fascinated with the idea of contributing to the launch of a brand that consumers are going to covet. And I'm like, I can't really do that as a beauty professional, but is there something that I can do in a way that allows me to intersect what I was doing in corporate America with where I am in beauty? It took a minute to percolate on that and figure that out. But I think what moved that needle forward was watching my daughter grow up. She was now two and a half at the time. When you work in film and television, it's 12, 14 hour days. It's quite a bit of a wait time. And I said, I don't want to miss any more time. You know, now I'm 10 years into that. I've done the great work. Now I need to do the great work as a mother. How can I still be present as a mom and also still be a contributor in this industry that I love and the industry that loves me? That's what I went back to the playbook, created another play. And that play was that I was going to now step away from film and television to working with people to work with brands. And how that looked is I'm going to bring in all of the business, licensing, brand, agency, creative to the table 
with brands who are creating products that want to get into the hands of women who love beauty just like I do. The thing is with founders that all that background that I talked about, they do not have. They have a passion for this product that came out of their grandmother's recipe or something they thought of at night and all the things, but they also need the foundational aspect of how to develop a brand, how to create the business around it, the messaging around it, the product, the pricing, the packaging, all of the things that I had built an entire career doing for multi-million dollar brands. I now wanted to be a resource for Black women-founded brands primarily to help them scale and grow their business with my knowledge, my information, my journey, my resources. They can do it quicker. They can make less mistakes because they have me on their team. They can grow quicker, grow faster because they have access. They don't have to wait. They don't have to stumble. They don't have to beg. They just have me. I am who I needed when I first started because I actually had a brand for a short period of time. Oh, you did? What kind of product did you make? It's called Chic Cosmetics. It was a full color cosmetics brand that I launched in 2015. And I had it for two years. And when I got pregnant with my daughter and got married, I couldn't manage both. I needed someone like me to tell me how to pivot. If I had someone like me to say, as a founder, here's what you do. You don't close shop. You audit your brand. What is selling best? Scale your business back. Focus your efforts around that. But don't close. My thing was, I didn't have access to anyone like me who could be the brain that would separate what was happening in my business, give me hope. So I am who I would have needed at that time. And I always say that I'm the entrepreneur for the entrepreneur. I love that. And one of the benefits of working with you is that you're not approaching it with the same emotion they may have attached to the work that they're doing. And while the brand can become their life in a lot of ways, it's almost like they can't see the forest for the trees because you become so engrossed and attached to things that you do need someone with a little bit of distance to be able to assess. You should do this, maybe not that. I know you love it, but what value does it bring to what you're doing, to your goal, et cetera? Yeah. hundred percent. One of the number one things that I see founders do is they start with the passion, but they never solve a problem. Many of them don't go in with solving a problem in mind. So much of what I have to do is sort of go back to the basics to say, okay, you have a great product. Don't get me wrong. And I hear your passion, but what problem are you solving? Because if it's not doing that, then why are we here? So we now have to go back and find a reason. We often do. The thing about working with me that I think provides a ton of value is the fact that I push my founders out of their comfort zone. If you look at my whole career, it's been about getting out of your comfort zone. Nothing about pivoting is comfortable. Nothing about sacrificing is comfortable. But there's so much growth, success, and opportunity outside of your comfort zone. So when you work with me, you're shifting from where you were to where you ultimately want to be. And you're going to do that in a place that is uncomfortable. But trust me, on the other side of that is a brand that you want, the success that you want, the revenue that you want, the awareness that you want, all of those things. But many of my founders have never done interviews. They've never been on camera because a lot of them are introverted. 
They want to be in the kitchen or in the lab behind the scenes. And I'm saying you have to be the face of your brand. Nobody can be an author and an ambassador of your brand better than you. No influencer can do it. No one else can do it. Why do you think Oprah was on the cover of her magazine all these years? There's an art to it. There's an art to knowing who you are matters in the space of showing up for your product. And so I create this whole photo shoot for them and I get them to see what is possible if they show up for their own brands. I put them on interviews. I make sure they do lives. Being a founder is very, very multifaceted. It is probably one of the hardest work that you will ever do because in order to get far, you have to be the one to do it. And I say that the brands that are successful with me are the ones that participate in their success. Right. I love that. What do you think the most difficult obstacle you had to overcome was? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. I think it could be a lot of things, but I think one of them more than anything was when I left working with people to work with brands, I disappointed a lot of people. There were a lot of celebrities and a lot of clients who trusted me for years, only wanted my work and my hands in their face, only wanted my energy in their space. And I get it because I built that trust with them. I built that connection with them. I built that loyalty with them for years. Many of my clients have been with me for years. And so when it was time to walk away and choose me, choose this new path, pivot differently away from people to brands and to products, it disappointed a lot of people. But that's life too. Your journey is going to mean that you may disappoint some people along the way. But the person that I can't disappoint is my child and myself. Like when I look at the work that I have to do to ensure that I'm the mirror that she sees, you know, what's possible for her life, that far outweighs sort of the expectation of a client who like really, really wants me to do their makeup. I had to make a decision and adulting, being an adult and being a businesswoman and being a business person is also a part of making those hard decisions. And when you make them, particularly in my world of beauty, there were some people that were disappointed. And it was very, very difficult because some of them wanted to sort of pull me out of retirement. I just had to stand my ground because I didn't want to confuse where I was going. And so if someone saw me doing X's makeup still, they would be like, well, she told me no. And it's part of consistency is also the focus, the intention that you put behind your own brand. And that, for me, I had to stay true to that. So I would say in the most recent time, that was the hardest thing because I really had a lot of loyal clients and I loved working with them. But when you pivot, sometimes you have to leave some things and people behind. Oof, that's another gem right there. Melissa, what do you do to give back? Is that something that's important to you? Giving back is extremely important to me, so much so that I created what I call a fund called We Fund Beauty. And basically what that does is it provides micro grants to beauty founders to participate in face-to-face events. I know that oftentimes the vendor fees, a lot of these expos and events can impact the brand's ability to make a profit because vendor's fees are costly and oftentimes they're not able to get a return on investment. So I eliminate that by paying for their fees to attend and participate in these trade show events so that their ability to be profitable is likely greater. And I feel that that's for me, 
is a way of just letting them know that I believe in them and also giving them just a break. I think we all need a break. And when we give and when we receive something, a contribution that sort of lightens the load a little bit, it gives us even more hope. And that's really what I want to do for these founders is give them hope by supporting them along their journey. And these events really do matter because they get an opportunity to not only sell products face-to-face, but also network across the aisle. So we're just creating that space for them. What gives you joy now? What gives me joy right now is I had like real weekends and like real time with my daughter. So I get to work in the business of beauty and I still get to be 100% mom. And so now my business and my career is crafted in a way I give my best to my clients. I give my best to my industry. But I also get my weekends when I take my daughter to the amusement park and travel with her and go to Lego, all the things that she wants to do. She never feels like an afterthought. You know, she's five now. And she's like, mommy, you're the best mom ever. You know, like what brings me joy is her joy. As a parent, there's nothing more rewarding than the validation from your own children's mouth that you're doing something right. And I'm not looking for it, but when it comes, all the things that it took me to get here, all the pivots and the choices and the disappointments and the ups and downs is wrapped up in a moment of, you are the best mom ever. Yeah. And I would add, you said you give the best to your industry, but you give the best to yourself now too. Yes. You definitely give the best to yourself. Yeah. Honoring yourself is so important. That's going to look differently for everyone though. So there's this whole notion now of like the soft life, a life that is intentional self-care. The idea that putting yourself first is the best way that you're going to be able to show up from other people. It's about filling up your cup. It's like the whole movement. Self-care is a real movement and it's intentional right now. So Yes, showing up for myself is and always has been the hallmark of my ability to also pivot and get to the next level because I bet on me. I bet on me every day, all day. I love that. And that brings me to our last question. We talked about when beauty companies didn't see your value, you bet on yourself. And you built a thriving career and on your own terms. So can you offer listeners and viewers some tips on cultivating that mindset that they need to do the same? Because it starts with your mindset. Because if you don't think you can have this, it's not going to happen. Even if you put all the ducks in a row, if you don't believe in yourself, if you don't bet on yourself. So what are some tips that would help them along this path? Yeah, another great question. I think mindset is... Not just important, it is vital. And as I mentioned to you, much of my mindset started working in a team environment, playing sports in high school, and realizing that the choice and the movements that I make is going to impact the result of the game or the team or even disobeying the coach and his playbook. So I think foundationally, the discipline that I learned at that time and the teamwork that I learned, but also the power of my role among that really gave me a lot of confidence early. So mindset is really truly about really trusting that you have all that it takes to do all that you want to do. 
And even if you don't, you can do it anyway. You can still do it, right? Because I think what happens is, is that there's a ton of conversation around this notion of imposter syndrome, which I don't know nothing about. And I'm not saying that because... You don't know anything. <laughs> I don't know anything about imposter syndrome. Who is that and what is that? I don't operate on no level of imposter, nothing. Here's why. It's not because I'm better. It's because I am very self-aware. And that has also been a part of my becoming. I didn't always arrive at this place, but I arrived at it soon enough to know that who I am is enough. And if I don't know something, I'm going to go figure it out. So if I knew that there are times in my career where I didn't meet all the qualifications on that paper, but I spoke to my strengths. I spoke to what I did know, but I also assured them that in the process of working collectively, that I will know all that I need to perform at a level that's going to help the business become successful. So for anyone who may be somehow stuck in their minds and in their hearts about what's next or how, the mindset is only a part of it, but your heart set what does a heart set say? Ooh, job. <laughs> that is so good. <laughs> what does a heart set say? Put your hand on that and ask that question. Because when the heart and the mind sort of work and they speak together, you know things are really clicking. But we spend a lot of time working on the mind. But then there's also the soul, the spirit, the body, the self. There are these other things. And it doesn't happen overnight. Give yourself permission every day to figure out how do I still show up with my strengths and then have the grace enough to know that whatever I don't have is not going to stop me. I look back at a lot of people I sat at tables with, these conference tables, and I'm like, I've got a master's, a BA. I've got all this experience. This person is getting paid a lot more with far less. Why is that? That's not a question that you will ever be able to answer. You can never watch what someone else is doing. Create your life such that you are your own competition. Listen, folks, you probably need to repeat this episode several times so you can have Melissa's gems because she's preaching right now. So much that is vital. I don't care if you're in beauty or you're an engineer or you're a housekeeper. Whatever it is that you're doing, this applies to everyone's life. Yeah, it does. I wish that I could have more these conversations with people just because I know so many people are struggling with that space of enoughness. I'm not saying that I don't have bad days. I mean, we didn't talk about all the pitfalls. We don't have enough time for that. I am telling you that I went through very hard times, but I don't look like what I went through because I know who I am and whose I am and where I'm going. That is where you have to be. The Teflon of it all is that I may fall down, but better believe I'm going to get back up. I may lose something along the way, but I'm going to gain it two times in the future. My life has been an example of that. So if nothing else, let my life be a testimony of what is possible. This young immigrant girl who had no running water, no electricity, leaving Kingston, Jamaica at the age of seven years old to come to the United States to make a life and a living and make it all possible. I had too many odds against me. This could have been very different. 
So I wasn't born into a mindset, but I grew into a space where I believed in who I am and the heart of my desire to succeed and not wavering on the hard work and the sacrifice that it's going to take to get there. None of this is going to come easy to you. If it were, we would all be where we want to be. But know that it's up to you. Like It really is. It is up to you. No one's going to hand it to you. Literally, no one's going to hand it to you. So take it. Don't just pull up to the table. Bring the chair. Bring the centerpiece. Bring the pencil. You know what I mean? Too many people just want the table. Listen, I want to bring the whole dining room. Right. You're preparing the meal that you're going to set before you. You're not just building the table. You're preparing to stay at that table. Preparing to stay at the table. And to stay at the table means that I need to eat. I need to be nourished. I need to be full. I need to be fed. Yes, 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 yes. Remember, it's not even what your mind says, it's what your heart says. Ooh, that right there. If you don't remember anything else, but there's so much you can remember. I'm saying repeat this if you need to, because if you heard a good sermon, you always say, what are you walking away with? This was the equivalent of that for one of my interviews. What are you walking away with here? I don't care what you believe, God or not, but you are walking away with something because she has preached something here. She has given us a good, nourishing word for career and life. That's the way I look at it. So I am so appreciative of you, Melissa. And I'm going to tell you guys that Melissa and I didn't know each other before our pre-interview, but her marketing campaign works because I saw her and I said, who is that? I want her on the show. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this interview. I've listened to your others and the pre-interview really demonstrated to me that this was going to be a great interview because it really starts with the space that you create for those of us who are coming on to share. And I think that space is one of pushing us to dig deep, to not only just answer your questions, but also be a conduit for all the other ears that would be eventually listening. That's our show for today. Follow Start Right Here on Instagram at start underscore right underscore here underscore podcast. And check out the Last Word newsletter for my latest musings on beauty and inclusion.